Good morning, Alan. How are you? And good morning to you, Jack. Morning, Alan. How are you? Great to talk to both of you. First of all, I'm going to kind of split the questions between both of you so I can get a handle on this. This is a riveting read, and I think anyone who wants something to uh, while away the lovely summer evenings here in the sunny southeast should pick up a copy of this. You can't put it down when you pick it up. Ireland's lockdowns here were harsher and longer than almost anywhere else in the, the developed world. Uh, the existential threat from the pandemic led to an unprecedented mass mobilisation of the state's institutions. So let's cut to the chase straight away, Hugh. Um, where did the idea for the book come from? Well, I, I think when the pandemic began in, in the spring of, of 2020, uh, I think Jack and I, who have known each other since we worked together in the Business Post many years ago, uh, realised this was probably going to be one of the biggest stories, uh, if not the biggest story, that we would ever cover, as such was its, its scale and the impact it had on every single citizen's life. And I think that the longer the pandemic went on into 2021 and, and kind of towards the sort of summer of last year, we we did kind of agree that we you know there's a book in this and, and there's a story to be told that you know notwithstanding the fact we both covered the pandemic uh, in great detail on a daily basis in our day jobs for the for the Irish Independent the Sunday Independent and the Irish Times, um, you know th- there was an untold story uh, to be told there as well about what really went on behind the scenes at various critical moments over the course of the last two years. Yeah. So we uh, came up with a proposal and agreed to deal with the publisher and, and off we went in kind of June of last year. Uh, to, uh, we began reporting on 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 what what you uh, have in the book Pandemonium today. Exactly, and and Jack, were you nervous about the reaction from those mentioned in the book when the book went to print, and what sort of reaction have you been getting? Uh, yes and no. I mean, like you're always a little bit apprehensive, I suppose, when you when you hit send on something like this, but. Um by and large, people have been very nice. Now, of course, they they would be nice. They would be nice to our faces, but you know, it's not been without uh, a little bit of kickback. But I think you want that as well because we really wanted to kind of get behind the scenes on this. And yeah. even though, as Hugh said, COVID was this enormous kind of all-consuming thing, you know, that 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 consumed politics and consumed public life in Ireland, we did think that you know there was a value in bringing the the, the reader behind those closed doors and yeah. into the rooms where the conversations are happening uh, that really mattered. You know, because it, while COVID blocked out the sun and really was the only kind of thing on the news agenda for so long we did think that there was an untold story um, that partially had its roots in in kind of the tensions between some of the key players you know so uh, people like like Paul Reid and HSE and Tony Colohan and Netflix and then the the, the rotating cast of characters at the top political table as well ranging from Leo Radker to Neil Martin and all their various uh, associates and assistants. Yeah, I've, I've listed about 10 items that I'm going to go through in a second. I'm just kind of fleshing out this at the moment just to get the general gist of it before I, c- I cut to the chase, really, Hugh. Uh, and I mean, uh, I, I listened to the podcast on the Irish Times, which is worth listening to with Pat Leahy, that, sh- that gives you the background to the build-up of the book. I'm fascinated by email and text messages. Maybe you share, shed some light on this for us, Hugh. Did you keep all the emails and text messages you got on this to help you formulate the, the content of the book? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of that stuff we we uh, we we obtained a, a kind of a mix of freedom of information requests and um, also just uh, sources who were kind enough to to uh, give us some documents or show us documents that were relevant to what we were writing about. So, uh, in some instances, people would have shared kind of diary entries, and, and some people would have shared kind of text message exchanges and so on and so forth. And as I said, we we used the Freedom of Information Act as well. We had, yeah. I think, you know, we had a spreadsheet going, and at one stage there was. 
uh, well over 100 requests that went into various departments and uh, government agencies. So we've amassed, I suppose, a huge uh, bank of uh, data and information and documents that um, obviously we are very protective of because uh, it's yeah. very important to maintain the, uh, the confidentiality of our sources. We have hundreds of hours of tapes or with with key interviewees, I mean, we interviewed scores of people for the book on a on a kind of a, a for the most part on a confidential basis. So um, with the, we we have a, a huge archive that um, we'll be very protective of, and we'll be very uh, keen to ensure that um, you know is is there and exists. But um, you know. We will make sure that people can't access it unless we say so. Right, fair play to you on that. Totally agree with you on that. You drew up a list of 126 names. Let's cut to the chase then, Jack. Your favourite document uh, on that podcast. <laughs> it's an interesting piece. Will you share with my morning ex listeners, please? Oh, yeah, this, this is a bit of crack. So this dates back to at the kind of late spring, early summer of 2020. And I don't know how much people remember about the kind of political atmosphere that was going on at that time we were just kind of we'd gone past the peak of the first lockdown and it was in the dying days of that uh that that uh, leo varadkar led government um that was changed out at the end of june and there was a lot of impatience kind of building up within the political system and within the population at large understandably because people have been locked down for several months and that impatience and frustration with the lockdowns was spreading to to the cabinet table where there was a group of ministers who were particularly anxious and particularly eager to accelerate the opening up process um, and some of their deliberations around one specific matter the the famous two meter social distancing rule and whether that could be lessened lessened to one meter they actually leaked out of cabinet and and Leo Varadkar sent this email around, which in turn was subsequently leaked to us, imploring his colleagues to to kind of you know keep a lid on things and respect yeah. cabinet confidentiality. And we we and I suppose we uh, found that quite funny in retrospect, given the the controversy that later attached itself to the tarnished over his leaking of a of a confidential document, and and we kind of we started calling that document the uh, the anti leaking uh, memo by Leo the leak that was leaked to us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there's some names I want to draw into the equation now. Hugh, the Taoiseach and Martin Fraser. This guy, Martin Fraser, seemed to have had his finger on the pulse before anybody or right up there at the very top. Can you share that one with us, please? Yeah, well, Martin Fraser is a, a key figure uh, in the in the state's pandemic response. He's the Secretary General of the Department of the Taoiseach. He's the top civil servant in the country. And um, he would have been at the forefront of the state's response right from the beginning of this pandemic. He's kind of the eyes and ears of the Taoiseach across government. Uh, he marshals the civil service behind whatever the Taoiseach's policy priorities are. And obviously the only policy priority at the, uh, at the edge of this pandemic was protecting public health and ensuring as few people as possible got seriously ill and, and died from COVID. 19. So, um, you know, we, we, there's a chapter on him in the book. It's uh, called The Unknown Man. And it's really, I suppose, because um, it, it's actually because of a picture, uh, an old picture in, I think, the Guardian newspaper that uh, where he was captioned as the unknown man. But really, it, it sort of speaks to the fact that not many people might know about him, but he really is a key figure within government. And I suppose we detail uh, in the book a, a lot about the relationship between Martin Fraser and Leo Varadkar, particularly around the summer of 2020, when Leo Varadkar is very anxious to get the country open again. You know, the disease is in abeyance. There's very low case numbers, like single-digit daily case numbers, which we uh, which we are, are long forgotten now at this stage. Um, and in amidst all this, with with Fraser kind of keen to open up, we we have a lot of kind of emails and text message exchanges where where Martin Fraser is very cautious. He's very, uh, you know, basically preaching caution at a time when there's no cure, there's no vaccine. 
there's a key meeting of ministers around the end of April 2020 where the CMO comes under uh, fire from some ministers who are very keen to reduce the social distancing rule from two metres maybe to one and a half metres or one metre and Martin Fraser makes a very telling intervention which was uh, remembered in great detail by Simon Coveney uh, where he basically says that there's no cure, there's no vaccine, this thing could come roaring back very quickly yeah. uh, and we need to be really cautious about reopening the country. So, you know, that, that led Simon Coveney to, to kind of conclude and to tell us in the book that he felt that at, at that point, you know, Martin Fraser was more important than some of the cabinet, which was an extraordinary uh, admission, I think, really, that a, an unelected civil servant could wield more power in government than a, a member of the cabinet. But that is the reality of the way the system works in Ireland. All right, let's look at some of the pairings then. Stephen Donnelly and Simon Harris. This is this this is worth the the purchase of the book alone, and Paul Reid and Tony Hoolan. So I, I give you uh, Jack, I'll give you Stephen Donnelly and Simon Harris. What are you prepared to share with me that's in the book about these two? Well, I suppose they face very different challenges, really. I mean, in the first instance, Simon Harris was obviously the Minister for Health, whose unpopularity had hold the previous government below the waterline and, and bounced them into election they weren't ready to to fight and ultimately ended up losing to Sinn Féin. So you have that in his background, and then all of a sudden, after that election, he's faced with this novel coronavirus, this entirely new threat, which not only threatens life and limb, but because of the policies that were necessary to bring it under control, forces him and the rest of the government and the healthcare establishment to, to shut down the country. And I suppose, unsurprisingly, given the fact that really people were scared and, and there was this kind of existential threat to the state, his popularity along with the rest of the government begins to climb again. There's this kind of rally to the flag effect. Uh, and he kind of goes out on a high and he's replaced by by Stephen Donnelly, who is obviously... Um, a bit of a, a bit of a new boy in Fianna Fáil to some extent, having a, a checkered political history as an independent and a social democrat, and before finally joining Fianna Fáil and becoming their health spokesman, and um, perhaps not well got in in some quarters of the party, and is appointed uh, as as a, as a new cabinet minister along with nearly everyone else in Fianna Fáil without any cabinet experience to you know what is traditionally seen as the most challenging portfolio around the cabinet table, uh, and at a particularly um, unparalleled challenging time. Uh, and I think that the, the, the view of people who worked around him at the time and the view of the book from talking to many of those people is that initially when he went in, he struggled. Now, there is some sympathy, sympathy there for him as well because he was yeah. he was faced with a much more complex and difficult task. I mean, closing yeah. down the country when everyone's afraid is a much, a much easier thing to do than reopening the country um, You know, when everyone is pushing to go faster and you're trying to balance the various demands of, of, of the virus. Uh, the picture that emerges of Stephen Donnelly is, is one is, is one of someone who you know has plenty of good intent, but perhaps uh, doesn't quite understand how to pull the levers of power and can get sucked into these internecine behind the scenes squabbles with people like Tony Hoolan. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we see that over the course of 2021, really, and into 2022. We remember the the massive fight over antigen testing that 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 was roaring behind the scenes. We have huge detail on that. A lot of documentary evidence, emails between the key principals. You know, so they they're two very different men who faced two quite different challenges. And I think the, yeah. the picture that emerges of both of those guys okay. and the story that it tells about the pandemic is a really compelling one. Okay, i got to take a short... Com- can you guys stay with me? Because this is riveting stuff. And I just want to flesh out a little bit more with you. But before I take that commercial break, Hugh, Paul Reid and Tony Hula, another pairing. Did they get on? Does the book tell us they got uh, on? Or was there rivalry between the two of them? I think there was a, there was a working relationship that, that did function. But I think both men, uh, I mean, I think as Paul Reed quite quite bluntly states in the book, they wouldn't be going for pints together. And I think that's reflective of the fact that at various stages there would be tension. Now, there's always tension, and historically there's been tension between the Department of Health 
and the HSE because the Department of Health is kind of setting the policy and the HSE is responsible for implementing that policy and the two aren't always aligned. Um, so when the pandemic hit, there was a couple of flashpoints. I mean, the, the, you know, one of the key flashpoints I think that we detail uh, in the book is this uh, issue of testing capacity. And the CMO was very uh, clear that he wanted 15,000, uh, sorry, 100,000 tests a week uh, for COVID-19 in the state. And he set this target at a time when the agency were working to increase the number of tests being carried out and the number of tests that they could offer. But certainly they were, the agency felt somewhat bounced into this kind of by uh, a press release. And it, it did engender a lot of, uh, you know, tension between the two uh, men. Um, ultimately, though, you know, as we detail in the book, Simon Harris, who was the health minister, convened a meeting and um, basically said that Tony Holohan was, was uh, the man who was setting the policy agenda. He was driving the car and, and the HSC was the engine. Uh, but, you know, Tony Holland was dictating which direction it would go. Um, you know, th- there's another example, I suppose, of the tension between the pair when Tony Holland wants to put a, a number of senior HSC officials onto Neffet. Uh, Anne, Anne uh, O'Connor, who's the chief operations officer at the HSE, or was the chief operations officer at the HSE at the time, he asked for her to go on Neffet. Paul Reed refused to put her on. Uh, and equally, uh, Neil Bird, who was the head of uh, the testing and tracing system, uh, Tony Holland wanted her on Nefit and, and Paul Reed refused. So there was tensions right the way through. There was some people on Nefit who viewed uh, Paul Reed's kind of outsized media profile and the fact he was out a lot in the media as unhelpful to kind of communications around the pandemic and that kind of yeah. uh, reared its head at various times. So there was there was tension right the way through the pandemic. But, you know, they, they worked together, I suppose, to, to deliver a pandemic okay. response that internationally is... Was, was was is viewed as pretty good, but but there was tensions, no doubt about that, and we detail it in the book. Okay. Jack, and you stay with me. We're going to come back to conclude our chat with you. I want to talk about Bono and PPE equipment, and also about what government reaction. One chapter of the book says the ugliest meeting I've ever been at. So stay with us, please. We're talking to Jack and Hugh in relation to their new offering. Southeast Radio's morning mix. Alan Corcoran. Chat, news, and your view. Rounding off our conversation with Jack Horgan Jones from the Irish Times and Hugh O'Connell from the Irish Independent Political Correspondence about their new books, a panda, our new book. Pandemonium. Uh, Jack, Bono and the PP equipment. This is an interesting chapter. Yeah, it's, it's some crack, all right. Yeah, I mean, we, we spoke earlier on about my favourite email or my favourite document that we reveal in the book. This is definitely my second favourite, if not my joint favourite. We were sitting doing an, doing an interview with somebody last September on a random Thursday morning, and, and the next thing I knew popped up on my uh, on my screen, Bono's personal emails to a man called Liam Casey, who uh, is not very well known, but is an extremely successful uh, Irish entrepreneur who mostly operates in China. And basically, Bono approached him with this email that was titled Bonos, B-O-N-O-S-D-S, asking him for his help in, in securing a supply of PPE. And we all remember the, the early days of the pandemic when PPE masks and gowns and gloves and aprons and all the rest of it was, was like gold dust and literally the, the price of it behaved a bit like gold at some points because there was this worldwide scramble to try and lay uh, your hands on as much as was humanly possible to protect people who were really in the front line when it came to fighting this virus and what we get in the book through these emails from Bono to Liam Casey and, and a bunch of other interviews and documents that we obtained through Freedom of Information and, and other means is this picture of the state kind of trying to mobilize all of its resources to get its hands on PPE in this incredibly competitive environment of how, and of how private individuals like Bono also were willing to kind of throw the shoulder to the wheel. Um, the Bono is obviously a fabulously wealthy guy, but he, he went the extra mile, these emails show, not just 
throwing money at the problem, but also trying to get in touch with people like this entrepreneur who understood the Chinese market and understood how to how to source yeah. uh, this material and make sure that it was of a good quality and then get it back to Ireland. So it's, it's really just one of many fascinating Anecdotes. funny little yeah. sub-stories that, 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 okay. that dot around the book, you know. All right, uh, I got to round it off, but uh, I, I want to get the reaction from both of you to this particular part. Houlihan and Glynn from Level 2 to Level 5 Disagreement. The government reaction, they hit the roof. The ugliest meeting I've ever been asked. You're not going to reveal who actually said that to you, either of you guys. But Hugh, do you want to take that one up? Level 2 to Level 5, because we well remember this, not just in national media circles, but in local radio circles and media circles as well. This was a big, big decision, wasn't it? Yeah, this is uh, this goes back to 2020, uh, uh, October 2020, the, the first weekend in October. Tony Holohan comes back after a period of, of compassionate leave uh, to care for his, his sick wife. Um, and he is worried about the deterioration in the disease. Case numbers are taking off right across Europe. The disease is going in the, in the wrong direction. The trajectory of the disease is going in the wrong direction. Uh, on the previous Thursday, Nefford had recommended remaining at level two uh, restrictions. Um, but Tony comes back, he looks at the data, and he decides that uh, even moving up to level three isn't going to cut it. And he thinks that we need to lock down a, a level five lockdown, which is basically closing everything except uh, essential services in the country, uh, which we obviously have all experienced over the last two years uh, at various points. Um, this decision uh, made at an effort meeting, on, an emergency effort meeting that Sunday, uh, leaks uh, before really uh, the, the wider government has a chance to consider it, and it causes consternation, and it results in what you say there, as, as one of our, our sources told us, was one of the ugliest meetings where, or the ugliest meeting where yeah. um, the NEFID officials are torn asunder by, by the Tornishta, by, uh, by others in the room, and really there's a, a huge degree of, of, um, of tension and uh, ill will towards each other that results in the Tornishta then uh, Leo Bradford going out on, on the Claire Burns show and, and making this quite pointed remark about how those recommending the level 5 lockdown have no idea what it's like to be on the pandemic unemployment payment because they're all uh, public servants or work for, for publicly funded bodies. And um, of course, this neglects to mention the fact that all, all of these people have families who are going to be affected by a lockdown and may well have to, to go on the yeah. pandemic payment. But look, the relationship really hits rock bottom at that point. Uh, the government then, two weeks later, does decide to lock down, but at which point uh, the numbers of people who've contracted COVID-19 is, has, has increased quite substantially. Uh, and that all leads, I suppose, to a series of decisions in the run-up to Christmas that uh, lead to the infamous meaningful Christmas. Um, and that's obviously yeah. something we could talk about if we have time, Alan, but it's, it's, yeah. it, look, it, was a, it was a very low point, and it did kind of, as we kind of outlined in the book, we do feel that it sort of led to the decisions that were taken in the run-up to Christmas, and then obviously the, okay. uh, the very uh, bad Christmas that we had and the very dark January 2021 that we had as well. Got to leave it. I'm going to leave the final word to you, Jack. How can, look, you, you've whetted a rapatite. As I said, I'm, I'm only dug into the... Uh, some sections of the book so it's available where it's called Pandemonium isn't it that's the title Power Politics in Ireland's Pandemic by Jack Horgan Jones and Hugh O'Connell where is it available available in all good and bad bookshops um, <laughs> all, all, the ma- all the major outlets uh, much as big as uh, Eason's and also of course on, on Amazon and Bookstation and wherever you might shop for your books online thank you both for joining me good morning to you thanks a lot Alan cheers thanks, Alan.